Church, as you are having a seat, if you would, grab your Bibles, if you've got one, um, and open up to Psalms. We're going to be in Psalm 46, Psalm 46. This morning, we are continuing in our series we're calling Rhythms of Remembrance, where we are uh, taking a look at uh, different selected psalms, and we're anchoring our hearts into all that God has done, that he is a God to be trusted, like, like we just talked about, that he is a God that can be depended on, that he is a God that, um, um, that loves us, that anchors our hearts into all these beautiful, wonderful truths, and these ideas of remembering all of who God is and remembering what God is like are found all through the scriptures. So it's not just this idea where we're wanting to say, hey, let's just think about and remember who God is. Uh, in fact, in the Old Testament, uh, walking through the book of Exodus, you see God rescue and save and keep a people for himself. He brings them out of this wilderness wandering, out of slavery, out of captivity, and he tells them to build a temple. And in this temple, they're going to have these uh, times where they remember all that God had delivered them from, where they're going to remember all that God had saved them from, where they're going to remember all these things that the Lord had done, and that's their time gathering together in the temple where they would worship this God who delivered them out of slavery and out of the wilderness. And then God and actually institutes these weekly rhythms that they would remember God. He institutes even monthly rhythms where they would remember God and even yearly rhythms and festivals and celebrations, all anchored to remembering who God is and what he's like. Uh, we see it even in the New Testament all over the place where God calls us to uh, remember who he is. Jesus, in fact, tells us in the upper room when he is about to go to the cross, he takes these ordinary elements of uh, bread and wine and he says, take these and when you take of these, do so in remembrance of me. He's wanting us to anchor our hearts to the realities of who he is. And, and oftentimes God uses this idea of remembering to anchor our hearts into our current reality so that we don't forget. Because so often throughout our lives, throughout the, the day, the sin beats us down, the world beats us down, we forget what he's like. And the scripture's all, always calling us back. Remember who he is. He is our shelter. He is our strength. He loves you. And so this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 46. Uh, and we're going to be looking at our dependence on God. So I'm going to read it in its entirety, and then we will spend some time uh, walking through it. Psalm 46 says this. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her, and she shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. <clears throat> the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow. 
and he shatters the spear, and he burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now here in Psalm 46, it's this beautiful psalm. It's, uh, there's some of it that is strange and difficult. You're like, what is all happening here? There's these incredible themes, but baked into Psalm 46 in verse 10, we have what might be the most recognizable scripture verses uh, in all of our Bible, right? Right up there with Psalm 23, we've got this one. It's be still and know that I am God. Anyone familiar with that one? Okay, one person. Okay, good. No, no one else? It's, I mean, it's on coffee mugs. It's on like every Thomas Kincaid painting back in the day in the early 90s. It's, it's probably, you might even have it on a plaque when you walk into your house so that you can be reminded of this beautiful statement. Be still and know that I'm God. They're these comforting words, right? I'm pretty sure I've got it on a mug somewhere. However, as I began to prepare to preach the sermon, and I was like, we're going to be talking about dependence on God. We're going to do be still and know that I'm God because, man, we can just anchor to that, and it's so comforting, and it's so beautiful. Man, I thought this is going to be, we're, this is going to be incredible. It's going to be awesome. But I was so wrong in what I thought be still and know that I'm God is all about. And it's taken me hours. In fact, I had to retool the whole thing even just a couple days ago to wrap my heart and mind about, around what is going on here in Psalm 46. And after studying Psalm 46, namely verse 10, I believe this may be one of the most misapplied verses in our Bible just because of how popular it is, of how recognizable it is. So what does it mean? What's going on here? How often we just pluck it out and we say it, but we don't understand the context that God is giving to us in the scriptures. He's trying to anchor our hearts to something profound here. Um, see, as for a pastor, it's easy. It's like, oh man, this is a great introductory thing. We can just stand up there and before service starts, we can just say, be still and know that I'm God. And we all kind of feel a little bit better about ourselves and we can you know, feel a little bit more religious and then we can leave and like, oh yes, that's wonderful. And, and everyone sort of calms down and we're, we're not quite as nervous about things going on in our life and we just sort of say it as a blanket statement. But it doesn't mean that at all. It's not just a platitude to sort of get you through the day. That's not what's happening here in Psalm 46. In fact, these words aren't even really addressed to us. The psalmist is writing in this stanza where we find this in Psalm 46.10 to warring nations, embattled warring nations that are fighting each other. And God says to these warring nations, be still and know that I'm God. In the very same way that Jesus looks at the storm and says, be still, and the waters cease, and the storm ceases. In the same way that Jesus comes up to legion, this, this multitude of demons in, inhabiting this person, and says, be still, and he casts the, the demons out. It's this supernatural, incredible thing that we see happen here. In Psalm 46, the God of heaven looks down at the warring nations and says, be still 
and their warring ceases and stops. It's miraculous. Um, And so when I came to discover that this most famous verse was nothing like I thought it meant, I knew we're in for a little bit of work here this morning. Um, And so as I dug in, the Lord really uh, showed me some incredible things. I'm so grateful. And so at the very start here, the theme of this psalm, where we find this, where we find this most famous passage embedded, the theme of this is quite simple. It's this fact that God is with us that God is with us, that he is a God who is near to us, right? And this is who he is. And so this God that is with us is described in this psalm as the Lord of hosts. So this God that is near to us, this God that is with us, that can make warring nations cease and be still is called the Lord of hosts. Now that means this, that God, this God, this Lord that is with us, that is near to us, is the almighty God of the heavenly armies. So the Lord of hosts means that he is the Lord of the heavenly realm, specifically the heavenly armies. So it's this, whoa, the Lord of hosts is with us. It's meant to put us in our place. It's meant to make us understand uh, the power and majesty and might of God. He's the Lord of hosts. And he's also the God of Jacob, it tells us in Psalm 46. So what does this teach us? This is meant to, this is our remembering part. So he is the God of the heavenly armies, and he's also the God of Jacob, meaning this, that this God, our God, is a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And we can remember all the promises that he made to Jacob are now true for me because he is a covenant-keeping God, and he does not break his promise. Um, So he's the God of the heavenly armies, And he's a God that has committed himself to those who follow Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and of course, namely now, most supremely, our risen Lord Jesus Christ. So those are these two amazing things that we discover in this psalm, that he is an almighty God, but he's not an almighty God that's far off and far removed and far away. He's a God that is near. He's a God that is with us. And he was with our forefathers. And he was with, like Zach talked about, generations and generations and will be if we have committed ourselves to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the God that we know. This is the God that is near to us. Even when we don't deserve him. Even when we stray, he is still gonna keep good on his promises even when we break ours. That's this God in Psalm 46. Now, it's, again, if if I'm not careful, we could sort of tip into, oh, we just preach a sermon on that, that God's with us, and we're all going to feel good about that, and we all like hearing about that, and we all leave with a nice, warm, fuzzy feeling about God being with us, and that feels nice and wonderful, but it's much, much more than just sentimentality. So many times... uh, sermons and religious ideas are just deduced down to sentimentality. But sentimentality doesn't survive the shocks of life. Sentimentality doesn't survive those uh, catastrophic moments in our lives. They just don't last. It's not just think a nice thought. It's not platitudes that God's giving to us here. 
And so I, I was like, Lord, help, help me not just preach a sermon that's just all about sentimentality and a pat on the back. And how do I know that the, the writer of this psalm is not just saying, uh, oh, it'll be okay, and move on? How do I know it's, it's much deeper than that and it's, and it's rooted in something that is uh, weighty? Because the tapestry and the backdrop of this psalm is war. Remember? And what comes with war? Death. Crippling fear about the future. Uh, all of these anxieties. And unless God shows up and does something supernatural, the backdrop of this psalm is we're done. I mean, verse two tells us these aren't just platitudes. This isn't just wishful thinking. Here we've got verses uh, one through three. Our God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. So there's some trouble going on that they are depending on God to be their refuge. What's going on here? What could be so cataclysmic that they're saying, God has got to be very present in this time of trouble. Well, look at this, verses two and three. Therefore, because he is our refuge and he is our strength, we will not fear though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now, if you take that literally, we see an astonishing frightening scene being painted before us. A lot of times we read the Psalms and we just sort of like kind of go through them like, oh, that sounds like psalmy language, right? Okay, let's just move on. That's nice. Let's get to be still and know that I'm God. What's going on here is, is cataclysmic. It's, it's we see the immovable mountains, the mountains that we love to go visit and see, the mountains that, uh, that are immovable and unshakable, that are just, there. they're enormous, I went and saw the Grand Tetons this summer. They're breathtaking. They're incredible to behold. And it doesn't look like anything will ever move those things. This is saying the immovable mountains are crumbling into the seas of the water and they're gobbling them up. It's a picture of the oceans and the waters gobbling up the mountains, and shaking them and crumbling them like the sandcastles we make with our kids and a wave comes and just annihilates it. And they're like, no, I should have built it further out. Right? We've all had those. Oh, I know, I should have seen that coming. Now, we're all well acquainted around here with hurricanes, right? We're like hurricane preparedness. We kind of have our guides we like to listen to. If you're like space city weather or you're uh, whatever meteorologist you love, like we, we track the hurricanes, right? And we know like how strong they're gonna be, how long they're gonna last. Uh, we know when to raid uh, HEB. And if HEB's out, then we know we can get water at Academy because that's like a secret hidden spot or we go to Trader. We all got, we kind of have our little things that we go through because hurricanes are a real deal around here. Hurricanes displace, the water comes, and it's devastating. And so I think that that even gives us a window into the type of cataclysmic event that's being presented here in Psalm 46. It's this dire and frightening situation. It's like Frank Billingsley telling us a Category 10 is barreling this way, and you better get ready, and it's coming. 
Anyone like Frank? Never mind, that's a side note. You can talk to me later about him. Now, here's what we don't do when we hear Frank Billingsley tell us a Cat 10. Is there even such a thing as a Cat 10? Probably not. But that's what's being described here. It's a swallowing up a mountain, right? So we'll call it a Cat 10. There is such a thing. It's described in Psalm 46. We don't just walk around and say, hey, don't be scared. It's going to be fine. That's a platitude. Right? If you said that to someone, they'd be like, this guy's a fool. Like, what is he talking about? It's not just a cute thing to say. Uh, and what am I getting at here? So what's, what's happening? So a lot of scholars believe that Psalm 46 was written by King Hezekiah. All right? And so let me explain why this is not just a platitude, why this isn't just a coffee cup mug verse uh, that just is supposed to make us feel a little bit more religious and we can go about our day. Uh, many scholars believe that King Hezekiah wrote Psalm 46, and the backdrop of this psalm is a war that he was embattled in. And you can read about this war. You can read about this invasion of God's people in 2 Kings 19 and 20 and 2 Chronicles chapter 20. I don't have time to read it all, but I'd encourage you to read it. It's a very long uh, narrative about this battle and about this war, and it's the telling of King Hezekiah. If King Hezekiah didn't write Psalm 46, he surely could have, because all these themes rang true. And so what's going on here is King Hezekiah is king of the nation of Judah, and Judah has built their walls around their city in Jerusalem, and an Assyrian army, an outside army, a ruthless, brutal army was coming to invade them. He's coming to get them. He wants their land, and he wants their stuff. He wants, the Assyrians wanted to, to have global domination of the known world at the time. And this evil, brutal Assyrian army had conquered nation after nation after nation after nation. One after the other. This nation fell. This nation fell. And this wasn't like uh, they take a few hostages and a couple like kind of slaps uh, on the cheek and then they go about their business. This was they leave no one. I got some little ones in here, so I won't go into the brutality of this invading nation army, but they make no bones about it. They will grind you to the dust is how they would go in and leave. This brutal nation. <laughs> and they are at the city gates. They are surrounded the walls of Jerusalem. And King Hezekiah is in these walls. And the scripture tells us that there are 185,000 Assyrian warriors uh, at the gates of the city. And King Hezekiah goes to God in prayer with what he believes is most likely his last night on earth. It's like, that we're, I'm, we're done. I'm done. And... Um, he prays in 2 Kings 19, he says, God, you are the maker of the heavens and the earth. And unless you come, unless you show up, unless you are our strong refuge, in other words, we're done. This isn't gonna end well. And here the prophet Isaiah is here, and the prophet Isaiah 
praise to God, the king. So he had an intermediary back in the Old Testament times. And Isaiah then gets a word from the Lord to deliver to King Hezekiah, because he's a prophet. Here's a word from the Lord. And in 2 Kings 19, 32 and 34, he says this. This is from the Lord, after Hezekiah's plea to God to preserve him. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege and mount against it. By the way that he came, by the same he shall return and he shall not come into the city, declares the Lord. And catch this, for I will defend this city to save it. For my own sake and for the sake of my servant, David. God says, I'm going to fight this battle for you. And they're, if you can, can you just imagine the scene? They're at the city gates. They're at the walls. They're in their camp. The sound of it all, the, the sounds of war, the chariots, the spears, the swords, the armor, the 185,000 brutal warriors about to lay siege on this place. And they're all there, and King Hezekiah is crying out to God in the dark of night, and God intercedes through the prophet Isaiah and says, I'm gonna fight this battle for you. (laughs) What is that gonna look like? Um. Remember, he's the Lord of hosts. That was a a great promise. He's the Lord of the armies of heaven, this God. In verse 35, I think it should be on the screen, we hear what happens. And it's hard. These are hard verses. Um, Verse 35 says, That night, catch this, the angel of the Lord went... That night, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. The angel of the Lord showed up. It doesn't say a great multitude of armies of heavenly warriors showed up. It says God sent one angel. The angel of the Lord shows up. Um. And the angel of the Lord, this one that came and, and saved God's people from this 185,000 warriors about to invade them, this angel of the Lord, this one angel of the Lord shows up all over the Bible. We could spend weeks and weeks talking about this theme of the angel of the Lord. He shows up in Psalm 34. The angel of the Lord shows up in the book of Daniel. Uh, where he goes into the fiery furnace and he saves Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The angel of the Lord uh, shows up time and time again through the Old Testament. And what many scholars believe, what I believe this angel of the Lord is, is the pre-incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ. Um, He shows up all the time to save God's people for the glory of God. Think about this. The angel of the Lord shows up and in an instant annihilates 185,000 Assyrian warriors. And many scholars believe that King Hezekiah wrote Psalm 46. And if he didn't, I believe that he could have sung these words 
uh, very true. Because he walked out, and it says at the very end that they, he took out, the king Hezekiah took out the people to survey the battlefield around him. And as he surveyed it, and he saw the scene before him, which was probably just, I mean, I can't even imagine. I don't even want to try to put it into words. He certainly could have sung this. Psalm 46, 8 through 11. Come and behold the works of the Lord. He has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear and he burns the chariots with fire. So he's surveying this. Then he says this. Be still and know that I'm God. I Notice, this is in quotations. Now, this is God speaking. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Um, It's not just platitudes. I am dependent on God. I can't do this on my own. Unless the Lord of hosts shows up, I don't see a way out. He's got to come through. Um, If you were an Israelite in the walls of Jerusalem that night and the Assyrians were there, it wouldn't just, it's, it's not the idea of someone just walking around the city gates and saying, cheer up, don't panic. It's, show up. Um, I don't know what's going to happen. Now, what Psalm 46 is telling us, what it's reminding us, what it's wanting us to remember is that we need not fear even in the face of catastrophe. In fact, in the second stanza, we don't have time to get to it, we can actually be glad because, why? God is. Verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. Verse five, God is in the midst of the heavenly city. Verse seven, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God. And it's all in present tense and it's communicating to us our need and desperate dependence on God, not ourselves. We need God to show up in our situation. We need God to show up in these cataclysmic, catastrophic events that we are faced with. Um, It's far beyond a coffee mug verse. It's not a pep talk. It's rooted in our deep dependence on God, show up, crying out to him. And when the psalmist says you need not fear, he gives us good reason and he keeps repeating it over and over and over again that God is with you, that God is with you, that he is your fortress, that he is your strength, that he is your help. Quit depending on yourself and lean all in on God and who he is. He is our everything. And so this first stanza is verses one through three it's not, it's not only just used, the biblical imagery is not just uh, stirring up earthly catastrophes, but it's also hearkening back to the language of even judgment, right? Now, uh, 
talking about judgment has kind of gone out of fashion in today's church culture, unfortunately. But if we can't talk about one day Jesus is coming back, that equals for us the good news of being rescued as sons and daughters of God, but it is also a judgment that is coming. And this is similar language that the Bible speaks of even in Judgment Day, that God will separate those who are his and those who are not. And that when Christ comes, he uses, uh, the Bible uses imagery of the world falling apart like this, that the stars are falling, that the, the sun and the moon will not be able to keep their place. Joel 2, 30, 31, if you want to look that up. That it's these terrifying moments. Again, it's painting this terrifying picture for us. And I wonder for a moment... Just here this morning, we might internalize that, that one day, that day is coming. That we can just maybe stop thinking of it as just this religious kind of ideal that has no bearing on our lives. But if you believe the scriptures, you believe that day is coming one day, judgment day. Right? I mean, that's a reality that the Bible talks about. And it's terrifying. It's quite frightening to consider the unstoppable machine of the justice of God coming to earth to judge the living and the dead. That's a terrifying thought. To know that one day all of our secret sin here on earth will be open scandal in heaven before him. That the intentions of our heart will be laid bare before him And this judgment that's coming, where the earth will give way, like it talks about in Psalm 46, will be irreversible because the almighty God said so. That's the reality. And it's a terrifying thought. It's this catastrophe that we're faced with. And one day, on that day especially, you and I will need a shelter who is our strength. We will need a shelter from the wrath of God. And sometimes the only shelter from the wrath of God is the mercy of God found in the Lord Jesus Christ, found in those that are called by his name. So this is talking about, yes, all the small catastrophes in life, all the way to the enormous catastrophes worldwide and all these wars and also to the very end in judgments where we can only find our help in God. It's no good looking for human help. It's no good trying to Google search your way out of it. It's no help trying to find the right YouTube video to find your way out. Only God will be your very present help in times of trouble. And it's the same help that showed up for King Hezekiah 700 years ago that fought his battle for him. That when he thought death was knocking at his door and judgment was coming, the angel of the Lord showed up. And the angel of the Lord shows up for you and I. And the angel of the Lord is Jesus. Why did he come? Um, because without him, one day we would be swallowed up in these great catastrophes, even in death and judgment. But he came to crush the enemy that accuses us and tempts us and makes us fall into sin. And he washes us white as snow for those that put our trust and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that on that day, that frightening day, we have a safe refuge in him. 
He came so that the Lord of hosts can be with you. And in order to do that, he came in a very surprising way. The angel of the Lord showed up in a manger. He was born in a gutter, in a garage. And he puts on flesh and blood. And he lives a perfect life, full of grace and truth, the scriptures tells us. And he goes to end the greatest war, death. And he ends it by going to a cross. And at the cross, he says, it is finished and the veil is torn in two. And now we have access to this great Savior, Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord. And he ushers us into his presence. And three days later, he rose again and defeated that greatest enemy, death. And he tells us in that day, in that great day when judgment is coming, that if you're found in him, if you put your faith and trust in him that has come, the judgment that should befall on you fell on him so that we can now be ushered into the very presence of the most high God. And we can have joy in the city of God, as Psalm 46 talks about in the middle that we didn't have time to get to. And we can claim this wonderful, beautiful truth that God is, God is my refuge and he is my strength. He is a very present help in trouble. Therefore, I won't fear, though the earth even gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea and the waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, I'm dependent on God because he is my refuge and he is my strength, wrapped up and safe and found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, church. Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we just stand before you in awe of you. Um, and we thank you that you fight our battles for us, the ones that we face that we cannot fight on our own. And God, I pray for anyone in here that just in their life right now, God, they are crippled with fear and anxiety about whatever faces them. God, would you remind them of who you are? Would they remember that if they put their dependence and hope in you that it's ultimately rooted and found in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are their shelter and refuge in a time of trouble? And God, I pray for anyone in here that has never put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that that uh, catastrophic day at the end, that judgment day, God, they don't know where they would be. Lord, would they today, for maybe the very first time, would they ask the Lord Jesus, the angel of the Lord that conquers sin and death, to fight the ultimate battle that they cannot fight on their own, and when they put their faith and hope and trust in him, that he died on a cross and that he rose again on the third day and those that belong to him are now safe in his arms forever. God, may we not just run to platitudes, but may you give us a deep-seated dependence on you knowing that you are with us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's stand and worship, church.